Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. The New Testament reading is from the letter of James to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. Warning against partiality. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, And if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Faith without works is dead. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and then yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no work, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Loving God, on this day, we give you thanks and praise that we can be connected to one another and to you. We give you thanks for the gift of your word, that you are the God who desires to be known by us. 
and even, dare we hope, known through us. And so we pray that you would help us to hear you well today, that you would uh, give us ears to hear what we need to hear, whether it's comfort or conviction, that we would respond with our whole selves so that the world might know you better. Pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. And pray, pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So um, someone once told me that if you ever go to a church and uh, you meet the minister and the first thing they do, or even early on, what they do is, is start listing off the, the, the social status and the accomplishments of the members of the congregation that you should probably turn around and run away. Uh, not because it's bad to have folks in a congregation who have accomplished things or been successful in one way or another, uh, not because what we do with our lives doesn't matter. What we do with our lives is a theological statement. It says something about what we believe about God. Uh, so, of course, it matters. The problem is that if what's appealing about a church is the status and accomplishments of its members, if that's the reason to be there, to rub shoulders with the right kind of people, what you've got on your hands is not a church. You've got a club. And when the church trades its heavenward call for a club status, uh, we get boring, frankly. We start to look an awful lot like the world around, and we forget that we're meant to do, to do strange things, to do weird things. <laughs> now, we're, we're continuing our series on James this week, and this is James's point at the beginning of today's reading. You know, the church is meant to be weird in the world. The fact is, the church has always been kind of a a strange social situation. If we were to go back and read the first four chapters of the book of Acts, uh, we, we would see this. We'd see that, that when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of those first Jesus followers, she, she mixes them all up in such a way that the, the world is turned on its head. We see folks with property and money and, and, and possessions giving stuff away for the sake of the poor uh, for, so that they create a new economy where Acts says they have, nobody has any need, nobody has any lack. A radical generosity takes hold of the congregation. We, we see a community that's so strange in the world that people can't but help but stop and stare, and most of the time they want in. Because it's a community in which it doesn't much matter uh, what family you come from. What matters is the family you've been adopted into as siblings of Christ. It's a community where faith and hope and love are the defining markers, not fleeting things like status and money and influence. We see a community learning to live as though it's not what we've managed to do with ourselves that defines us. It's what Christ is doing in the world that tells us who we really are. The church is meant to be this community of siblings adopted by grace and learning to live in all of our imperfections in response to the weirdness of the life and death and resurrection and reign of Jesus. Now, from the get-go, the church is meant to be what, what Eugene Peterson calls a, a colony of heaven in the kingdom of death. We're, we're meant to be evidence that in Jesus, God has done is doing and will do a new thing in and through us. We're a community living, learning to live out, not out of what we have done, but what Jesus has done. Not out of who the world says we are, but who God says we are. Not out of the expectations and patterns of the culture around us, 
but of the ex according to the expectations and patterns of Jesus. And that's the call of every generation who bear the name of Jesus from then when James is writing until now. And that's why James gets all up in our faces right off the top. He says, siblings, you're, when you're playing favorites, I got a question whether y'all even love Jesus at all. Yeah, I, I can't tell by the way you're acting, he says, whether you even believe in Jesus. And that may seem harsh. <laughs> it seems harsh to me. But, but for James, it's never enough just to kind of talk about things like how Jesus breaks down the barriers between us, the things that divide us, or how gathered at the foot of the cross, every one of us finds ourselves covered in Jesus' prayer that we would be forgiven because we don't know what we're doing. Or that in the wake of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, not only do we live in a world where God does marvelous things, but we get to be a kind of first fruits of what's coming. It's never enough just to say that stuff. We don't get to be merely hearers or sayers of the word. And more than that, we don't have to be merely hearers or sayers of the word. But we get to be doers of it. Right? We get to work out the world-inverting grace of God in our everyday lives. And in James's context, as much as in ours, one of the most important ways in which the church uh, witness to the way that God is at work in the world is by actively subverting the expectations of the culture around them. Now, in Roman culture, uh, which was extremely hierarchical, uh, the church was the only place where the rich and poor found themselves as equals. Right? For a few hours a week, slaves and masters sang and prayed and ate together. Beggars sat alongside members of royal courts as if it was the most natural thing in the world. It was a sort of hint at Isaiah's great image of a time when wolves and lambs will lie down together, where people will not hurt or destroy each other anymore, but the, the whole world will be full of the knowledge of God. The, the church was and is a space where we learn to be a living hint at how things will be when God gets the world that God wants. And so a lot is at stake when we come together. A lot's at stake when we come together. Will we model our behavior on the expectations and patterns of the world around us? Or will we be shaped in the new world way of Jesus? Will we perpetuate systems and structures that separate and divide us based on power and status? Or will we kick down those walls in the name of Jesus? Will we treat one another as if what matters is what family we come from or our bank account or our personal successes? Or will we learn to recognize that when Jesus gets a hold of us, we find ourselves in the grips of a love that we could never earn and that will never be withheld, even when we definitely don't deserve it? And when we're gathered at the foot of the cross or around the table of Christ, it's amazing to be preaching behind our communion table. When we gather in this place, we, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. We learn to recognize ourselves as, and each other as people deeply in need of God's grace. Imperfect people, perfectly loved. That's who we are. We are imperfect people, perfectly loved. And the more we lean into that reality, the sillier the distinctions between us come, or become rather. Instead, we learn to recognize that we're each made in the image of God, that each life is, is precious in the eyes of the one who made the heavens and the earth. 
that everyone is someone that God would give everything just to have. You are someone that God would give everything just to have. I am someone that God would give everything just to have. And if that's true, how can we possibly make distinctions? What could, what could possibly be of more significance than that fact? You know, in a way, the church is meant to use the standards of the world in order to subvert them. Because we know full well that when we show up, we don't always arrive as equals by any familiar standard, right? Some of us have more money. Some of us have more stuff. Some of us have more success. Some of us are better looking. I don't know. Whatever the thing is that we're going to create standards by, we, we don't all show up exactly the same. We're not naive about that. But to be part of the church means that we come with an intentional willingness to bring our whole selves into God's presence and then surrender the whole thing. It's to offer up everything that the world says is important for the sake of what God says is important. Everything the world says is important for the sake of what God says is important. It's using whatever we've got, whether that's a lot or a little, uh, whatever we've got to get in on what God is doing which the Bible tells us over and over and over again. It may not be on every page, but it's on enough pages to make the point clear and unavoidable. What God's up to is an active reordering of things. Now think of the things that Jesus says. Says things like the first will be last and the last will be first in the kingdom of God. Says if you cling to your life, uh, you're going to lose it. But if you give your life, uh, you'll get more life back than you could ever hope to imagine. He says it's not going to be the powerful, uh, the influencers, the the people of status who are going to be marching first in the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be the ones who fed the the naked and uh, fed the hungry and clothed the naked and uh, uh, visited the imprisoned and gave a cold cup of water to someone who was thirsty. It's the poor and the pure and the persecuted. The the meek and the mourners and the merciful, those who are starving for another kind of way to be together, who are the blessed ones in this topsy-turvy kingdom of God. The kingdom of God's an active reordering of things. And so the church comes together to practice doing that. We gather in the name of the one who gets down on his knees to wash the feet of his disciples. The one who came not to be served, but to serve. The one who refused to cling to a power that was rightfully his and instead emptied himself for love's sake. We gather in the kind of weirdness. Imagine this in the first century. The kind of weirdness that would have a master serve his servant the loaf and cup. Or or, or church leaders down on their knees washing feet. The rich and the poor sitting side by side as if it's the most natural thing in the world. We gather understanding that it's not what we have done, but what God has done that gets us to see at this table. Now, when James starts talking about the law in this passage, I think he's doing it kind of ironically. It it muddies things a little bit, but I think what he's reminding us of is that none of us get it all right all of the time. (laughs) So, So that better not be what matters most. Some of us get it wrong a lot of the time, so that better not be what matters the most. When what we do is what matters most, judgment takes over. And that that may make sense in just about every other sphere of our lives. But it is a tragedy. We should weep. It's a tragedy that Christians have have come to be known as judgmental people. 
And just about every survey taken anymore says that this is what people think, that Christians are judgmental people. We should, that's a tragedy because that doesn't make any sense in the church. Right? Judgmentalism doesn't make any sense in the church, not in the presence of Jesus, not in the power of the Spirit, not in the kingdom of God. Here, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment, James says, and heaven help us if it doesn't. James's overall point is that the, the church isn't an exclusive club, it's a kind of training ground. Right? This is where we learn in real time with real people how not only to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. Here we get to learn not just to talk about grace, but to become people of <coughs> We get to learn not to talk about self-giving but, but as a, a kind of ideal, but to let self-giving love have its way in every corner of our lives. We get to not just imagine a world in which barriers crumble, uh, not just imagine a world in which uh, other ways of being together are possible, not just imagine a world in which the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and gentleness and self-control bloom in abundance. We don't have to imagine it. We get to learn to live it here and now together. And if we commit to doing it here, in kind of the, the, the safety of the community, then it's much more likely that we'll learn to live it when we get out there, right? We get to learn to live that if Jesus is raised from the dead, it's foolish to live otherwise, whatever the circumstances. If God's future is even now invading our present, if we've been called and claimed by the one who's making all things new, and we have, then it's the height of foolishness to live otherwise. It's absolute silliness to live lives dictated by the standards of the world when we are perfectly free to live for nothing less than the standards of God. Now, if the gospel is true, if the good news is that, that God is going to get the world that God wants, it's ridiculous to carry on living as though that's not true. Which, which is part of the reason why in every generation, and we should just admit this, Every generation in the church, throughout church history, has tried to conform the gospel at some point uh, to some other set of expectations. We can all be tempted towards that. But it never works out very well. It never works out very well when we are hearers of one word and doers of another. It never works out well when we claim the gospel and are claimed by some other way of being. I don't think that James was a, a funny guy, very likely. I, I'm not sure he was the life of the party. I think he was a pretty serious dude. Um, but I think what he says here is kind of funny. Right? He says that to believe one thing and to do another is as silly as telling someone who doesn't have any clothes or food uh, to keep warm and eat their fill without giving them any clothes or food. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, he pulls the cover off any attempt to come together in the name of Jesus, to pray and to praise and to sing of a new world order while still trying to live in an order that's passing away. It's foolish to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven, and then spend our days uh, trying to advance our own little kingdoms and wills. It's as futile as telling a naked person to keep warm in the dead of winter. And so James is not messing around here. But his urgency is a gift, I think. He, he won't let us settle for anything less than God's goodwill for us and for this world. Now, I keep thinking about this G.K. Chesterton. He was a 
thinker in the 20th century. Uh, th this quote that I, 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 you've probably heard me say it before, but I was thinking about it this week, that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Right? The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Now, I think James is reminding us that we are made for the ideal, even when it's hard. He's reminding us that the stuff that we say and do in here on this hour of the week is true every other hour of the week and everywhere else, even when everything around us says that it's not. He's determined to help us know uh, uh, that we live in a world in which Jesus is raised from the dead, which means that God, there's nothing that God won't do. No length to which God won't go to make this world whole, to heal our divisions and our hurts, to, to make a new way marked by an extravagant love and justice and righteousness. And in Jesus' name, we have been called to get in on it. And we're made to live our God-bearing image. Genesis says we're made in God's image. James is just reminding us of the fact. And we're made to reflect God's goodness and grace in the world. To be ambassadors of God's love, even when division is easier. To be generous when keeping our stuff is more prudent. To be patient when we're told that efficiency is ideal. To be kind when it's easier to be indifferent. To forgive lavishly and to receive forgiveness humbly. To be peacemakers in a world hell-bent on violence. And, you know, of course, just to double back real quick, we do all of this and we get to do more in the spirit of grace, right? We get to do this as people covered in mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We don't turn this into a competition to see who can be more humble, right? We, we, we may strive to outdo one another in love, as St. Paul says in the letter to the Romans, but we do so playfully and joyfully and freely, not trying to earn our place at the table, but receiving Christ's invitation with gladness. Now, James just really wants us to know this one thing. In the company of Jesus, we get to be doers of the word and not just hearers of it. We get to be living proof of the hope that is ours, come what may. We get to dance the dance of Jesus, even if we're crucified for it, because we know that we'll rise to dance again. So may it be so. Amen. Amen.